GraphQL is refining as it goes along in the patterns that it uses and the architectural styles that fit with it. And Unified Graph is definitely becoming more popular. So whether you have microservices on the back end with gRPC APIs or external APIs with REST or directly to a database, all of those things can be unified in a GraphQL, basically API gateway. From Toro Cloud, this is the Coding Over Cocktails podcast, a free pool of thoughts, ideas, and advice from IT experts, innovators, and thought leaders, exploring the world of digital transformation, APIs, microservices, cloud adoption, and more. Welcome to episode 70 of the Coding Over Cocktails podcast. My name is Kevin Montalbo. With me is Toro Cloud CEO and founder, David Brown. Good day, David. 70. Time flies when you're having fun. I had no right. idea we're up to 70. <laughs> yeah, too fast. All right. On this edition of Coding Over Cocktails, we're going to have another tech smackdown. Our third one, putting forth two technologies, concepts, or architectural styles in a friendly sparring match. Today, we're debating between REST versus GraphQL. Which web API architectural style should we use? Let me introduce our guests. On the REST corner, we have a returning guest from a previous episode. He's currently the Open API lead at Postman and is known as the API Handyman, helping people from executives to developers and everything in between understand what APIs are, why they matter, and how to do them. He authored the book, The Design of Web APIs, which teaches readers how to gather requirements, balance business and technical goals, and how to adopt a consumer-first mindset while teaching effective practices using numerous interesting examples. Joining us today to represent REST is Arno Lore. Hi, Arno. Welcome back to the show. Hi. Happy to be here. Hi, Arno. Yeah, great to have you back. All right. On the other corner, we have the technical lead in open technologies, also at Postman. She focuses on GraphQL as one of the five API specifications supported by Postman. Before this, she worked on an API project at Telefonica that exposed backend services, including the billing API, through their global mobile developer program. She has also begun participating in the GraphQL Working Group, which is responsible for developing and releasing the GraphQL specification. She is the Working Group co-lead of the Rust Compiler Contributor Program she helped create, called Rust C Contributor New. She is working to bring together and share her knowledge of Rust and GraphQL as more GraphQL tooling is being developed in Rust by Apollo and the Guild. Representing the GraphQL side is Doc Jones. Hi, Doc. Welcome to the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, we'd like to remind our viewers and listeners that you can dive deep into today's episode by visiting our page, torocloud.com slash podcast, where we'll have a full transcript of this podcast episode, show notes, as well as links to resources to be mentioned in the show. You can also download our iPass Martini for free. Martini is Toro Cloud's integration platform without limits. Take charge of your business using a single solution to manage all of your data across applications, databases, and business processes. Try it out and discover why it's the highest-rated iPass on G2. Visit torocloud.com martini to learn more. All right, on to you, David. I oh, know. Let's get started with uh, REST. Why don't we start with just a couple of definitions and uh, and the ori- I guess the origin of these technologies as well, because I think that leads us to some of the use cases for these as well. So REST, what does it do? How did it come about? What's it trying to solve? So REST is first an architectural style. Uh, it's for REST and for representational stage transfer, which means absolutely nothing for most of people. Uh, But if we try to make an actually usable description of what REST is, 
Uh, it's an architectural style that was created to actually define the HTTP protocol. That's it. Uh, Roy Fielding needed need that thing to explain what was the, uh, rationally what was the HTTP protocol, its characteristics, and so on. What is interesting with this style is that you can apply the principles that are defined in REST to any type of API, any of any type of communication between pieces of software. Nevertheless, some people decided to take the REST names, say, oh, we are building REST API. In a sense that they are building REST APIs that take advantage of the HTTP protocol and sometimes follow more or less the constraints of the REST uh, architecture style. So nowadays, when you are talking about a REST API, it's an API that is composed of requests that are get slash this and post slash that. That happen to, if it works, return a 200 OK responses with some data. Uh, if it does not work, maybe a 400 or whatever. That's the simple uh, definition of what is a REST API. There are numerous debates about being purely REST or not, but basically it's APIs that try to follow the HTTP protocol. And sometimes the, their creator really think about the principle of REST APIs. I might dive into that you, uh, you were just alluding to there, whether it actually is REST or not. I think that the definition of REST has become more loose over time. So why is that? What What is the true definition of a RESTful API as opposed to what we see more often today? Yeah. So uh, true, and I put quotes around true, a REST API will first follow the HTTP protocol semantic in a sense that if I see a get slash something, I expect to that it's a non-dangerous request that will, that will get me some data and absolutely not delete something. And I've seen people creating pseudo REST APIs that do that, deleting stuff on a get request. To notify the status of the request, you will use the correct HTTP status code, 200 when it's okay, 400 when the consumer made a mistake. Then you can also take advantage of uh, another constraint of REST, which is cacheability, in the sense that when you return some information, you can provide metadata telling, okay, what we have just given you, you can cache it for five minutes, one day, or do not cache it. You can then use a conditional request uh, telling, okay, I had I had those data identified by something. I want to get them updated. And the server can then respond, uh, okay, no, there, there was no update, so you don't need to retrieve those data again. There is also um, clear separation between the consumer and the provider of the API, uh, in a sense that the consumer uh, do not need any information about how is implemented the API. And it seems uh, it's a principle that is often neglected uh, and sometimes too often consumers, especially for internal API in big organizations, want to mingle in how the consumer, the provider uh, develop its API and so on. But basically, the consumer does have to talk to an interface and they don't care about what is actually happening behind. And actually, they don't know if the, the real system that gave them the answer is the one they are directly talking to. They don't care about that. So there are different constraints. Um, also, we can talk about um, being discoverable with hypermedia stuff in a sense that I can talk with an API and it can tell me what I can do with it. Uh, I don't have to rely on documentation. 
Yeah, okay. So th- there are some features of the, the REST API. What, I guess, has made it all pervasive? What has led to its success? I think that the main, in my opinion, as, as someone who's written a book about API design and is really uh, an API design geek, it's the um, uniform interface. In a sense that either I'm using an API from company A or company B, I don't want to quote the usual name, but even if they do not deal with uh, the same topic, for example, an API dealing with telecommunication, an API dealing with banks, if there are true REST APIs, they will work the same because they share the HTTP semantic. So I already know how they work without having to think about it. Also, the HTTP protocol is what has made the web what it is today. It is accepted by a wide range of equipment, from security equipment, routing, whatever. And it's not, it's easy to implement in any technology. Whatever programming language will take, there will be the implementation to basically support the HTTP protocol. Now, there are frameworks that allow you to develop REST API more easily, but if you just want to stick with the HTTP protocol, you can do in any programming language. It's simple to develop. If you do them even not well, you, st- you have a uniform interface that makes them somehow easy to use, but you can still make terrible REST APIs because there are our concerns. Uh, but yeah, I think that's why there were successful in the last, let's say, two decades. Yeah. Okay. Well, Doc, the REST has been incredibly successful and it is simple. The tooling is, is uh, robust and all-pervasive and covers a lot of programming languages, as I was just saying. So what caused GraphQL to emerge? What problem was it trying to solve that REST wasn't already solving? Well, I think um, probably you and and many listeners to this program know that uh, GraphQL hasn't been around as long as REST. Um, It was something that was developed as part of Facebook's effort to create an iOS client. Um, And so as they were trying to uh, create a, a, a user experience on a mobile device uh, for the newsfeed, uh, they found uh, issues with uh, having multiple endpoints to, to just to be able to deliver the Facebook UI, which has many, many components. And so the other thing that the other benefit that they got from, from creating GraphQL was the decoupling of the client from the server. So if you're building RESTful APIs, then there is coordination that has to occur between the server and the client. Uh, the client receives, you know, whatever data is available uh, as a, generally a large, fairly large object that then they, then they have to handle and parse on the client side. Um, but with GraphQL, uh, you can uh, create a query uh, and only request the data that you need for your service or for your UI component. There were, so let me go back and, and start where Arnold did, which is with a definition. And I will say, I will caveat all of this by saying that both GraphQL and I <laughs> are much newer uh, to this, you know, to the, to, to, to the API world than uh, RESTful or Arnold. They've, they've both got a couple of decades on us. I think Arnold's been like telling other people how to build uh, APIs for at least a decade, maybe longer, but he has 
uh, tremendous expertise and, and experience. Um, I'm much newer to this. Uh, I've been the, the GraphQL lead at Postman for two months. Uh, two months. So okay. <laughs> a lot of what you'll see on my blog is me learning in public. Uh, I, I've been encouraged to do that. And in fact, uh, prodded to do that by Ken Lane. And he's absolutely right about it. I, I, the more I do of it, the more value I see in it and, and why it works. Um, but let's start with GraphQL. GraphQL is a query language and a server-side runtime for APIs that prioritizes giving clients exactly the data that they request. So uh, you and, and your listeners probably have heard of, of uh, overfetching as being an issue with uh, REST, and that's what I described earlier, where you get this very large object, whether you need all that data or not. And then the client has to take on the responsibility of parsing it and GraphQL alleviates some of that. Now, I will say that GraphQL and REST have become incredible technology partners in a number of use cases. Uh, it's not unusual to have a variety of either external APIs that are delivering uh, a REST API to then be unified in a GraphQL uh, API. Uh, and the purpose of that is to combine various REST APIs in different combinations to create a, a single service. Uh, one example of that would be in the e-commerce space, which there's, this is fairly getting more common, uh, using the, the backend for front end pattern where you create an endpoint for a specific application as opposed to a single endpoint for everyone in the public. GraphQL is refining um, as it goes along and, and the patterns that it uses and the architectural styles that uh, fit with it. And unified graph is definitely becoming more popular. Um, so whether you, whether you have microservices on the back end with, with gRPC APIs or external APIs with REST or directly to a database, all of those things can be unified in a, a GraphQL, basically API gateway. Um, and then again, you can provide various endpoints for whatever service you're trying to, uh, you know, trying to service or trying to, to provide data for. Uh, for example, shipping is a, is a, is a, uh, an activity on the front end that calls various backend services. So inventory, you know, uh, uh, shipping providers, you know, a, a combination of those, uh, various data. What am I trying to say? I'm suddenly f flaking on my, uh, on the word I'm looking for. Anyway, data sources. Um, so, and you can go combine them in various ways. And again, being able to unify them into, uh, into a GraphQL API gateway has been extremely helpful. And again, you're decoupled from the client. So the client can go ahead and develop their applications and determine what data they need and create queries around that uh, without waiting for the development of backend services. So you, you gain, uh, companies are reporting that they're gaining speed in, in, in uh, uh, development and time to market uh, by using GraphQL this way. There are, uh, I think probably the company that has the most responsibility for creating 
excitement around GraphQL is definitely Netflix. Uh, so the very first company outside of Facebook that deployed was Airbnb. But when Netflix basically created subgraphs for all of the microservices, the, the thousands and thousands and thousands of microservices that they run uh, to then unify those into a, a single um, GraphQL uh, API gateway, uh, they have an entire team that does nothing but manage their schema. Creating subgraphs allowed them to uh, basically allow domain experts within the different service domains to be responsible for creating their own schemas. Um, and so you push, again, it's sort of a decoupling idea where you're pushing that responsibility down to the people who are, are experts within a certain service area because they developed the microservice. Uh, and then you, the, the schemas are combined, uh, at the API uh, gateway level. And not all instances of using a unified graph result in a public GraphQL API. There are a number of instances where the public API is actually a client of the GraphQL API gateway. Sorry, just to repeat that again for me. So Twitter is a really good example. Their public API is RESTful, but it is a client of the GraphQL API gateway. We started out by saying REST is simple, it's, you know, mimics HTTP protocol, there's lots of tooling and programming languages. Now I feel like I just want to use GraphQL for everything. Like I can get the exact data I need. I don't get to the payload, I don't get overloaded with the payload. So I know, I know how, how did, does REST deal with these challenges? Is, does it have an alternative for something? So regarding decoupling the client and, and the server, that's one of the constraints of REST. So you have that out of the box. And either you are doing REST, GRPC, GraphQL, or subservices, you still have the decoupling between client and server because you can create mocks, you have service definition, and so on. So whatever the type of API, you have that. You can also do query with REST, which are far less advanced than when you can get with GraphQL. But if you want to restrain the amount of data you will get, you can do that. You can use standard formats such as on APIs. Uh, when you call the REST, Twitter API, which is backed by a GraphQL API. But when you call the REST API, you can you can tell which are the properties you want when you are retrieving your Twitter feed. So it's possible. And also regarding the uh, overfetching, underfetching, whatever, in most of case I've seen where people come to me to say, hey, we want to use GraphQL because we have shoes. Actually, the problem was not choosing between REST and GraphQL. The problem was designing APIs. And either you do a REST API or a GraphQL API, if you do not work on the design, it will not work. And so sometimes uh, I did that mistake uh, a long time ago when designing a banking API, uh, resulting on the client having, which was a mobile application, having to do many small requests always because the design was wrong. I misidentified the needs from a pure business perspective. And so I fixed that by creating a bigger uh, operation, retrieving more data, but that was making sense from a pure business perspective. So that's really uh, important for people to understand that design is important for all type of API and REST like any other and GraphQL also. Uh, and also taking or talking about simplicity, GraphQL, if you can retrieve exactly the data you want, construct request exactly like what you want, you will get a big bag of data or small bag of data, uh, which is tailor-made for you and you need, which is cool. Is it exactly what you want? The problem you can have with that is that how you under cache. 
So there are tools that help if I can correct me, talk if I'm wrong, but there are tools on the client side that help to sort that problem. But in the very beginning of GraphQL, this was a problem. You cannot cache the data or you can cache them, but you don't know how long for how long. You also have to, and with REST API, you can easily protect system exposing REST API, putting a gateway and throttling. When you create GraphQL requests, the consumer, if there are no bounds, no boundaries, they can do anything they want. So they can create very complex requests. Unless, and I've seen, maybe Doc, you have some info about that, but I've seen that now maybe it's embedded in some GraphQL system. You can calculate the complexity of requests to avoid putting the system down behind that. Okay, Doc, you you were shaking your head there. So tell, tell us your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So I think, I mean, I, I, I think I have not done a very good job of sharing with my colleague all the things that I've learned about GraphQL and certainly its modern incarnation. Yeah. So caching is common both on the, the, the server and the client side. The other thing that's interesting about GraphQL, the tooling, again, GraphQL has not been around as long as REST. And so the tooling is not, in some cases, not there or immature. This is a fact. That's why most of the tooling that uh, exists at very large implementations like Netflix or uh, Twitter are custom. Uh, they've developed their own tooling because in most cases when they started, it just didn't exist. There's a lot of work going on with GraphQL, certainly. Uh, GraphQL has been able to adapt and adopt a number of tools from our REST brethren and colleagues. Authorization is a really key one because it's something that is not at all included in the GraphQL spec. There's nothing about authentication or authorization in the spec. And so most implementations and implementers and even tool uh, builders will use uh, OAuth and other authorization tools from uh, from the rest world. And there are, there are other things that, you know, that are still sort of at issue that are, that are, you know, constantly in developed, in development. But the good thing about, um, the way that GraphQL is constructed, especially on the server side, a schema, I should say, is that you have a lot of, it's very extensible. So you have a lot of flexibility in terms of, uh, creating, uh, what are called directives. Um, there are some that are, that, that come a, a, along with the spec that are built in. Um, there is introspection, as Anna alluded to, uh, which allows you to submit a special query that will give you the schema for a given GraphQL. But it's been, a, you know, a best practice for quite a while, unless you're dealing with an internal GraphQL that you really uh, want to disable introspection. You don't want the outside world to be able to uh, get a copy of your schema. And that's that's a common best practice kind of thing. And so that vulnerability has been addressed. Uh, I, I don't disagree that it was not a problem, you know, early in the early, early days when things were new. But I think there's a number of things that, you know, have been addressed. The other thing that I would say is that it's really important to take a look at the fact that most large at scale GraphQL implementations or even well done ones rely heavily on REST APIs. <laughs> so you're, you've got GraphQL being successful because REST is uh, so prevalent and ubiquitous. Uh, so you can combine, you know, multiple 
uh, rest endpoints and wrap them in a graph and, uh, you know, create a, a, a service that is easier for the client to consume because it's wrapped in a graph. The other thing that I would like to point out is that a graph in itself, as we combine new data sources and many, many, many more data sources uh, at scale to get you know, insights, make decisions, all kinds of things. GraphQL has the some capability in the fact that it is a graph. So not only do you have the nodes or what I tend to think of as resources in a restful uh, sort of paradigm, uh, but you have context on the edges. So there's there's important data that exists uh, in the relationships between uh, the nodes. And it's more than just like, you know, relational database type information. Uh, for example, uh, if you look at the most basic implementation of a graph, it would be like uh, online mapping. So you have destinations and you can create a route between those destinations, but you also on the edge, living on the edge, have context for things like uh, distance and traffic and uh, weather conditions uh, that are commonly now being reported as part of your you know, mapping service. There are other examples. I'm not sure how... Well, I'd like to talk about some of that. Is this a case of, when we talk about REST versus GraphQL, is it a case of horses for courses and that there are some natural uh, use cases for GraphQL versus REST? Are there particular use cases which suit GraphQL better than REST? Let's dive into those if there are. Uh, there are. So there was actually an episode of Ken Lane does a, a video podcast called Breaking Changes. And he did an episode with um, a gentleman from, from Oracle Hospitality and Oracle Hospitality serves, you know, all of these hotel rooms and resorts and that sort of thing. So the reason that they chose GraphQL is because when it comes to doing a reservation, for example, there's a lot of information about a given room that's not within the room object. So there could be a maintenance issue. There could be, it, you know, it's, it's available, but in housekeeping. Uh, so there's all these kinds of, and I'm not going to represent this, you know, as well as it would be if somebody went and watched that episode of Breaking Changes, which I highly recommend you do because um, that gentleman is a, is an expert on, on this. But there's a lot of state information that lives on the connection uh, between the nodes. And so they found that being able to describe that context uh, on those connections uh, was extremely valuable and was actually helpful in terms of their network usage and uh, the, the speed of the application. Again, I'm not an expert, so you would have to uh, consult him. Um, no, that makes but, sense. Uh, so there, there was a natural yeah. use case for GraphQL. I know. Is there, what, what are the natural use cases for REST? As, a, as an architect, everything. everything, because there is no silver bullet, never in architecture, but there is the usual answer that you look first and the other ones. And aujourd'hui, and aujourd'hui, I'm speaking French. And nowadays, <laughs> REST is the default type for many API because that works well. Uh, you have the uniform interface, you know, it works. You don't have to think about it and you can easily define a bounded API that will do a specific under a specific subdomain of activity. And so it works pretty well. Most public, if not most, probably 99% of public APIs are REST APIs because everybody knows how to use them. But maybe it will, it will change in the future. We just had, I have GraphQL in my toolbox and I usually recommend it uh, in, as um, Doug described it, uh, in a backend for, back for front end, typically. I'm building 
a mobile application, a web app, and I, I know I have different APIs to call, to aggregate and whatever. And using GraphQL can be really useful for that. And so basically GraphQL yeah, would, will be I, probably I'm... on over REST APIs. Or... Sorry, Doc. Yes, Doc. I was just going to, I was just going to, I just, I, I realized another uh, aspect of, of GraphQL that, that's interesting for uh, people who, who like to use it. And that is the fact that uh, you can specify error handling uh, within the schema. And so that's not an external thing. You know, errors are, are handled automatically for every query and every mutation. Speaking, speaking of mutation, uh, the one thing I, I really like the query capacity of GraphQL. It's really amazing. But when it comes to modifying data, I don't like that because I lose the uniform interface. Because with a REST API, you have your address resource, you get your address, and if you want to modify it, you just use the same endpoint, change the HTTP method, and it works. With GraphQL, we come back to, when it comes to modification, it, we come back to the RPC world, and so you have to define your functions, uh, unless I'm mistaken. I think that Netflix and Twitter, uh, if they want to provide a, a, fun, um, a mutation that allows to update something, they can name it update this or save that. And so you cannot guess how it works by just looking at it. Hopefully you have a schema, but it's just, I'm a bit complicated. I like to put things in box to be able to go from one thing to another. And in GraphQL, the query is in my opinion, too much separated from uh, the modification. But that's probably a problem only for me and most people, especially people who develop mobile application and uh, website don't care about that. But for a public API, when you need to guess how things work quickly and easily. You, you start off by saying REST is an architectural style. So I'd like to throw a spanner in the works to, to bring the show to a conclusion. Say the emergence and dominance that we're seeing with event-based processing and pub-sub architectures. Is an API format like async API going to come along and eat both your breakfasts? Uh, I'm going to start on this one because this is my favorite. This is my favorite thing is when somebody says a technology is going to replace another technology. In my experience in this, in this industry, that never happens, ever. So uh, there will be, REST will continue, uh, GraphQL will continue, and Async API will uh, uh, take its place. And there will be, because we have these great fit-for-purpose technologies, uh, there will be specialization. And, uh, you know, people will, after, you know, experience, more experience with GraphQL, it will find its its place and its role within these new complex systems that we're uh, faced with uh, uh, going forward, and uh, the the increasing amount of data that is uh, required to be handled by everything. And async API uh, does a you know a beautiful job of focusing on uh, messages uh, as opposed to the 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 kinds of things that that GraphQL and and uh, Open API deal with. Um, so I, the answer, uh, I, I am completely convinced and strongly believe, is yes and. So REST and GraphQL and Async yeah, API. Totally agree with that. And uh, there is no silver bullet. And it's really important that people stop to be fanboys. And I purposely say fanboys because, let's be honest, men in technology can be a bit dense sometimes. 
but it's really first, what is the problem you are trying to solve? Work on that, the technical problem with business perspective, settle, define your problem, what you want to do, and then choose the right technology that will work in the context of your problem and in the context of your organization. Because if you want to introduce a completely new technology that nobody can deal with inside your organization, it's a huge problem. And if you choose the wrong technology, it's a huge problem. You will just create new problems instead of solving them. I can't think of a better point to end the program on. Uh, Arno and Doc, thank you very much for joining us today. I think that was really informative to differentiate between the two technologies. Uh, it was great to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Hey, listeners, thank you for joining us in this round of cocktails. Please like and subscribe to check out other episodes of this podcast series. We're also available on your favorite podcast platforms, or you can simply listen in at torocloud.com where you'll find full episode transcripts and show notes. On behalf of the team here at Toro Cloud, thank you very much for listening to us today. This has been Kevin Montalbo for Coding Over Cocktails. Cheers! Cheers!